Well, if you're at the uh, 35 to uh, 30 to 35 age range and up, then uh, I want to ask you a question this morning. If you're younger than I, I'm not sure if you will know this, but it's kind of a quiz to start out this afternoon. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you, this phrase, and I'll give you a hint. The category is television, okay? Television. You ready? If you're in a dispute with another party and you can't seem to work things out, don't take the law into your own hands. Take them to court. Sound familiar? Anybody got it? The people's court. Man, as a kid, I don't know why, but I love watching the people's court. If you're not familiar, it was uh, it ran from the early uh, 1980s. It's actually produced by Monty Hall, the guy that produced Let's Make a Deal. And this newfound idea came to him about televising a reality court uh, show where uh, two uh, individuals in conflict and dispute were actually in a real live reality legal dispute. They dropped their case before the court in California and they agreed to settle that dispute with this in, in front of this television uh, audience and Americans all over uh, the country. And believe it or not, um, uh, the People's Court is the most popular uh, television court drama to date. It actually won four Emmy Awards over the life and, and, and the span of that show. And as I think about the way in which that manifested itself and grew and expanded, that the list is so long today of these courtroom dramas. I mean, it went from Judge Walker to, to, you know, we have famous ones like Judge Judy, and the list is too long to name. But one of the things that stands out to me this afternoon is the way in which it educated our country and how to handle disputes. It was just another way of a soft infiltration of teaching people that if you can't agree, if you've got a dispute, don't overlook an offense. Like, you know, by all means, don't do something as rational as that. But instead, just take them to court. And so you would be wrapped up into this, uh, this story of typically, you know, a lot of times it was an, an ex-boyfriend or an ex-girlfriend that borrowed money or lent money. Or it was an ex-landlord that let you, you know, borrow his car and you totaled it, you know, on a, you know, a racket around a tree or, or something to that degree. And, but it was, it, it was captivating to watch these things. But the problem is that it teaches us and, and uh, a worldview or it infiltrates our worldview system so that even as Christians, even in the church, we begin to think that way. We begin to think, well, um, I've been wrong, I've been offended, I have this conflict in my life. And so I need to do what I've been trained to do on the television, and that's take somebody to court. But as believers, we are trained or taught to do something completely different. And this passage in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is a continuation of this manual of church order, as you might call it, for the church in general. This is a beautiful letter that Paul has written for us. And he is dealing with all these different things in the church that are, are so pivotal to our understanding as what a church is, how it functions, 
and we have been learning that. We've been learning about division and faction. Um, we've been learning about um, what it means to cast out sin in the church. That we should not allow sin to remain. And because if it does, it will corrupt the body of Christ. And now we come to um, really uh, the, the, the conclusion in this early part of 1 Corinthians where Paul is talking about spiritual authority. As we look through church discipline and we see this situation in chapter 5 where Paul is dealing with a man that's living an immoral life and he's telling the church, you should have dealt with this issue. You have a spiritual authority and responsibility to deal with it. You didn't deal with it. And so guess what? Now i got to jump in and take care of things. And so he calls the church to excommunicate this brother because he has continually lived in the, uh, in the state of sin, unrepentant sin in the church. But the overall theme in chapter 5 and in chapter 6 is the spiritual authority that exists in the church. That you and I, as brothers and sisters in Christ, have been so united to Christ that we are not here to just dwell among each other, to be present among each other, but to live life together as we learn to admonish one another in Christ, to counsel one another is the word that we use, so that we might grow in Christ, so that we might stamp out sin and be a pure church for the glory of Jesus Christ in His name. That's what we want. And as Paul uh, lays really clear out in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Corinthian church was not doing that. And then when we move to chapter 6, he again is dealing with something in the same realm, the same neighborhood of spiritual authority. But in this sense, it's not a conflict that one brother has with another, but it's, it's the involvement in which we, the part in which we play in those disputes between brothers and sisters in Christ. So in other words, our spiritual authority as the church, as individuals in the church, redeemed by the blood, saved by Christ's uh, redeeming work, have been united together with Him, we each play a part in our spiritual growth and sanctification as a body. And so Paul is making this very clear statement today that in the, the realm of living together as a body of Christ, living life together, we will encounter disputes and conflict. It just happens. We're all sinful, right? We all agitate and irritate each other. This is what, I mean, let, let's be honest. Don't look at your spouse when I say this. But you know what it's like to live someone in your house, right? You know what it's like to, to wake up every day and, and see them. And it's just not always roses and, 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 and flowers. A lot of times it's thorns, right? And in the same way in the church, we've been conditioned to just come and be. And not come and be and live together. And so we've disconnected ourselves from the whole practice of spiritual unity and spiritual love and spiritual authority. Let me just say it right now. Stuart and Adam and I, we have the leadership of this church as elders. God has appointed us to lead in this body. But we all have spiritual authority by the power of Christ and in the name of Christ to participate spiritually in each other's each other's lives. 
That's what God has called us to do. It's not all on the shoulders of Nathan and Adam and Stuart. It's on each one of our shoulders to guide and direct us, each other to spiritual authority. And so the problem that Paul sees is that there's, there's a situation in the church in Corinth, and we're not sure what it is, but there's a situation where there's a, a dispute and conflict that's arisen, and that is not dealt with within the church. It's now taken outside the church to a legal authority where a legal, unbelieving judge will make a decision about this dispute. And Paul, in the boldest words possible, and then I'm paraphrasing here, says, that's crazy. That's just crazy. That we as the people of God would take our affairs outside the, the, the community of faith and let unbelievers deal with those affairs. That is a denial of the understanding of spiritual authority and the spiritual practice in the church. I mean, folks, we have the Holy Spirit of God that created the world and everything in it. It's that Spirit living and dwelling in us. And yet we take things to Judge Walker? Are we serious? That's crazy. That's Paul's idea. And so we're going to look today at that spiritual authority in the church that God has given us, that God has called us to, so that we might be people who seek peace. Paul is challenging the church to remember that spiritual authority. He's teaching us in two main ideas about how that spiritual authority is practiced and played out so that we might be the judges over disputes among God's people for the glory of Christ. That's where we're going to go this afternoon. So let's look at number one. The world was not appointed to judge the church. This is what Paul says at the beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous not, and not before the saints? Paul uses, as I said, very bold words there. Do you dare? Do you dare take these cases before unrighteous people instead of the holy ones? Now, the context throughout this passage is going to be brother to brother. One and another Christian in conflict with one another. Okay? We're not talking about a, a conflict that you might have with an unbeliever. We're going to, I'll cover that a little bit, but Paul's main idea is these are disputes in the church between those who are confessing believers in Jesus. That these are conflicts among spiritual people that require spiritual attention and spiritual authority. And this is all what we are involved in as believers. And so in verse 1, Paul makes it very clear that this is wrong. He forms it in a question, but he's talking about this case against a neighbor. How dare you take that to the courts before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Think about it, church. The conflicts that we have as believers that end up in a people's court type of situation, whether you owe me money or you violated some right that I have as a human being, the issue with that can never be settled in the people's court. You know why? Because it's a spiritual issue. And for us to take such a case to an unrighteous judge so that he can swap around our possessions, 
makes no sense. The truth of the matter is, is that spiritual condition or spiritual problems that lead to legal matters needs to be dealt with in spiritual ways in the church. These judges, these unrighteous people, as Paul calls them, he's not just labeling them as unbelievers here. Notice the comparison in verse 1. The comparison is the unrighteous judge versus the holy ones. That's the Greek word agios, the holy ones in the church. So he's not just saying, you shouldn't take your court cases to unrighteous judge or unbelieving judges. But he uses unrighteous to define the worldview in which that decision would be made. That judge is not thinking about your spiritual condition any more than a psychologist or a therapist is thinking about your spiritual condition. They're merely dealing with the tangible situations and effects of that problem. Well, let me handle the mood that you're in with some therapeutic play, uh, practices in your home. Let me handle the, uh, the financial aspect of this dispute so that everything will be cleared up. Well, listen, if you owe me money and a judge decides that you're gonna, I'm going to get some kind of restitution, I may have a, a, a fatter pocketbook and a fatter wallet, but you and I are going to be friends. Right? Because it's a sin issue. It's a heart issue in our lives. And so Paul is, he's rebuking them. Why would you take these to a legal court instead of dealing with this situation in the church? Ken Sandy, in his book, The Peacemaker, which I would encourage you greatly to read. He writes, civil courts can make rulings on legal and property issues, but they have no jurisdiction or the ability to address sin or other matters of the heart. Described in James 4, 1 through 3, and Matthew 15, 19. Therefore, civil courts, he says, are completely powerless to resolve the root causes of a lawsuit or to help people break free from sin that is fueling our disputes. Only the church can authoritatively carry out the ministry that is needed to thoroughly resolve a lawsuit between believers. Now, parents, imagine the next week your children are playing and you hear a ruckus in our house it's more like a melee and there may be some, some tugging and some pulling and some slamming and some punching and kicking and you go in and you break this up and instead of uh, pulling each kid aside and, and dealing with the, the issues of anger and the issues of jealousy and discontentment you pick up the phone and you call a therapist and you say hey could you handle this for me could, could you take care, could you talk to my son right here and then talk to my daughter afterwards and give them some advice and some wisdom? That's what we do when the church and believers who are in a dispute take things outside the spiritual authority of the church to unrighteous people and say, please handle this for me. It's silly. Now, we have to acknowledge that there will be situations in which we are brought into legal issues as believers. I mean, let's be honest. We live in a sinful world. Oftentimes, a believer will be in conflict with another believer. And in that conflict, it cannot be resolved. And they go and they hire a lawyer and they bring about a legal thing and, 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 and do exactly what Paul is telling us not to do. And you are sucked into that. 
You are sucked into that. You are being sued by a brother or sister in Christ over some dispute. And practically, I see in churches today that pastors idly sit by and don't say a thing about it. They don't sit, they idly sit by and they, they, don't, they don't go to those brothers in their churches or their sisters in their churches and say, this is wrong, you shouldn't handle this, this way. Let one church and a, maybe a, a brother or sister from another church that's a believer, a professing believer, who have a dispute, let's all get together and have a conversation and try to resolve this conflict, conflict as believers, even from different local bodies of the church. Instead, pastors are silent. Man, I would love to, to, to be involved in and see reconciliation and peace from maybe a, a member in our church that's being sued by someone else. I know situations in the business world, particularly in the construction world, where contracts are breached and immediately the legal team gets assembled. But if there are two Christians involved in this situation, why not have that brother and that other brother and their pastors get together and have a spiritual conversation about what's really going on? About integrity, about pride, about treasuring earthly possessions and not possessions in heaven. Let's resolve those situations in that way instead of taking them to the courts. You'll be familiar with a, 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 a similar situation in recent days where the, the main county of L.A., I guess it would be Orange County, they sued Grace Community Church where John MacArthur pastors. And the reason why is because John MacArthur and the leadership at Grace Community, they... Uh, they took a pause on their worship services during the, the beginning of COVID, and then they retracted and began to see that, that, that they could meet again because the uh, restrictions in L.A. were impeding upon their religious freedom. And so they began to meet again. And as they met, it infuriated the county of L.A. and Orange County, and they began to get fines every week. And those fines mounted and mounted until finally the, the, the county of L.A. Uh, in L.A. sued the church. Now, the, there was absolutely nothing that Grace Community could do besides hire a lawyer and engage in that legal struggle. And by God's grace and faithfulness, Grace Community Church won that legal battle, received all the money and legal fees back, and donated the rest to a, a ministry and society for the, for the glory of Christ. And so there are going to be situations where we have to, um, we, we might be brought into some legal situation. And, and I think that the goal here in that case is that we, we refer to or we be reminded of Romans chapter 13. That if you're brought into a legal case, you're not seeking that out with other brothers. You're still living as peacemakers, but you're brought into a legal situation. Be reminded of Romans chapter 13 that teaches us that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except for God, and those which exist are established by God. Here's why I bring this up.
Because while Paul tells us to deal with issues and disputes in the church, we also don't want to have the mindset of, de of denying the rights and the responsibilities of earthly judges and authorities in our lives. I can just imagine in the church some believer reading 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and going, well, I don't have to listen to them police. I don't have to listen to them judges. I need to handle all these things in the church. That's not what Paul's saying. Instead, he, he reminds the Romans that, that God has put these authorities over our lives. And as they lead us and they, they guide us, we should respect them. But ultimately, they come from God. And if we're brought into some legal battle that we uh, have no uh, choice but to defend ourselves, we trust in the sovereignty of God. And in that sovereignty, knowing that He is ruling and reigning all things, He's appointed those judges, and therefore we can trust His perfect plan and goodness. We have no reason to fear. And so ultimately we can kind of see and encapsulate this idea and understanding that, that as we as the, 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 the body of Christ, we are called to live in peace and harmony. And when we come and dispute with one another, we're not to take those things outside of the church. That is Paul's message in point number one. Secondly, it's the church that's been appointed to judge rightly. And he lays that out in verses 2 through 6. Verses 2 through 6. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that, the, that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So you have law courts dealing with matters of this life. Do you not... Um, do you not appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? So Paul's idea is basically with a lot of rhetorical questions and some difficult interpreting uh, interpretations in these passages. Paul is basically saying, look, you need to be corrected in this way. The church has been appointed to deal with spiritual matters among you. And what is his basis for that? His basis is the way in which we will judge the world and angels. That we as believers who are united with Christ in his death and resurrection, our union with Christ, as, as Adam was praying earlier, our union with Christ is the very foundation by which we can judge matters in the church with the spiritual authority that God has given us. First of all, it's not us judging it. It's not by our standards. It's by the surrender that we have to Christ, the truth and the wisdom that He has given us by His Holy Spirit and in His Word. And it's the foundation and assurance that we will judge the world. And this is what He tells us, that we will judge both the world and angels. This is a all looking forward eschatologically into the future, reminding us that the Bible speaks that when Christ returns, we will reign with Him. We will rule with Him over mankind. And in particular, we will judge the nations, Paul says, and angels. And this is written throughout the Bible in different places, in different ways. Like, for example, in Jude, 
We're told that angels who do not keep their domain, but a man is our proper abode. He has kept them in eternal bonds until under darkness for the judgment of that great day. So we know that angels will be judged, that God is reserving some judgment for all the fallen angels, Satan being the utmost. We know that the nations in the world, Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, tell us that all the nations that reject Christ will be judged. I saw the dead, he says, and the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from these things which were written in the books according to their deeds. These two well-known truths that God will judge the nations, He will judge all of His creation, including angels. But that we will play a part in that is astonishing. And, and let me just kind of walk us through uh, the, just the logic of this that, that Scripture reveals for us. We know that in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus gives us a clear declaration to his disciples. He says that all things are handed to me by my father, and no one knows the, uh, the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son, and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. So the, the Lord has uh, told us in his gospel that Jesus Christ has been given all authority. And that authority includes the rule and reign of all things and the judgment of all things. So Jesus, we can declare, is going to be the judge of the nations and the angels. And then in Luke chapter 22, Jesus tells his disciples that just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So now Jesus de being declared as the one who has full authority to rule and reign over all things. Also tells his disciples that they, the, the, the future kingdom, will rule and reign and judge the people. Similarly, Revelation chapter 2 verse 26 he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. So because of our union with Christ, church, because he has full authority, because he has been called to rule and reign and judge the wicked, he has invited us because of our union with him to rule and reign with him, to participate in that judgment. So we know that that's our future. That's, that's what's coming for us, right? Because of what Christ has accomplished. But we also know that as Christ has done those works, He is continually doing works in us now. And we talked about that, the, the sanctification of the saints. So even now we're reminded that because of the finished work of Christ, we are being perfected day by day in wisdom so that one day we will be perfect in wisdom for all eternity. Right? You're reminded of Philippians chapter 1. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Alright? So Jesus has authority to rule and reign. He calls us and tells us that we will rule and reign with him. We are being perfected day by day by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God 
transformed into the image of his son. Therefore, and here's my thesis, therefore our current union with Christ and the judgment of church matters is already in a not yet practice of what is to come more fully. So in other words, what we will do in eternity, we're called to do now in the church as believers. To judge, to make discerning decisions, to rule and to reign over each one of our lives with grace and kindness as a shadow of what's to come. Paul is just making this case in these verses through 2 through 6. Because you will judge angels and the world, you are qualified to be a part of the spiritual process of your brothers and sisters in Christ when there are disputes among them. It's just a picture of what's to come. Practice it now. And you're like, Pastor, I don't, I don't, I don't, really, wanna, I don't really feel qualified to, to get involved in those things. And we're reminded, as we talked about in the admonishment of the church, you are qualified with the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit's on your resume, you are qualified. When the Word of God is, is filling you and, and really deep within you, you are qualified. Because it's not your wisdom, it's not your good ideas, it's what the, the Lord will say to them through the Word of God delivered by you. That's what He's doing. And it's a beautiful picture, an eschatological looking forward of what will come and practice today in the church. That's why we say the church is a shadow of, of heaven and eternity. And it's glorious. And so what we must do is be faithful to participate in settling these disputes and seeking the wisdom that is needed in times of conflict. I would say even that, that we must learn as believers to not just be good listeners, although it starts there, but we must move from listening to leading people to the truth of Christ. You know, a lot of times what I mean by that is, is that we are engaged in trying to help someone biblically. And oftentimes, worldviews infiltrate our, our understanding and it's more therapeutic than it is instructionary or instructive. So what we're doing is we're saying, you know, we're, we're taught at times to go, yeah, I understand. Yeah, that, that's, that's true. Yeah, that's, I, I understand what you're saying. I empathize with you. And round and round we go until the person leaves and they've been given no instruction. They've been driven, not, they've not been driven toward Christ. They just have someone else that loves them and listens to them. Now there's a balance, right? There's a balance in that. We need to lead with love to Christ. We need to listen and we need to lead with love. Pointing them to the gospel. And so there's ways in which we would participate in that. I would use again Ken Sandy as an example. He lays out two in his book. He talks about mediation and arbitration. Mediation he defines as simply the process in which you gather with someone else in a dispute in the church. You are the third party. You are the mediator. And in that, that 
conflict resolution that you're involved in, the mediator is there to literally point people back to wisdom and truth so that they might make a proper decision. And I appreciate this, this practice, this one phase of biblical resolution in the church. You're gathering with them. Pastors do this all the time. Maybe it's a husband and wife that need counseling. And what you're doing is you're, you're hearing both sides. You're listening and you're leading them back to what the truth of the gospel says so that they may go home and practice those things. Okay? That they may go home and practice those things. I would say that this is not what Paul was talking about here. This is the pre-version of Paul's issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And the reason why is, as you'll notice, all throughout chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, Paul uses the word judge. In the Greek, it's krino. It is a, it is a definitive legal term of decisions that are made by some authority over you, particularly in the legal courts. But Paul is using it to say that even the church in its spiritual authority does not just listen and give discernment, but there are certain situations, even in the situation with Corinth, where the church makes the decision for the people. You guys can't come to a resolution. You can't come to a, a, a peaceful a decision. So instead of taking the situation now to the courts, the church should judge in this decision. And that would be more of arbitration. That literally the, the church itself, whether it be individual believers or the church leadership, they come together with wisdom from God's word. And they don't just point you to that. They are so um, determined and committed to seeing Christ exemplified and peace reached that they help you make that decision. Now, this is kind of radical for the church today. Like, Nathan, you are, you are stepping on my toes. You have entered into my personal space. This is not who I am. And church, I have told you this for weeks now. We need to shed the grave clothes of individualism if we are to be the church that God's called us to be. This is what God's called us to be. To be up in each other's lives. Pastor Keith's here tonight. I cannot get this out of my head. He used to say, get inside, or would you say, get up in my cereal bowl. I'm not misquoting you there, right? I'm like, dude, I don't want anybody eating out of my cereal bowl. That's a great example. That's how we have to be as the church. And so imagine, church, that there is a dispute in the body. And that we are so committed to faithfulness and spiritual unity and spiritual authority that we say, I, I, I need your help to decide this case, to decide the situation for the glory of Christ, for the sake of peace and reconciliation. Because the world has no business involving itself in something that's a spiritual matter. And this is why Paul is so harsh. Look at verse 5. I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not, is there not one among you, one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But a brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. Now verse 4 
In that, in that little section, verses 4 through 6, verse 4 is, is difficult to interpret. Every commentary you read, they're going to tell you that it falls on one of two things. And let me tell you why it's difficult. I want you to understand, if you have a copy of, of one translation in your house and a copy of the other, you're more than likely going to have two different translations in verse 4. And the reason why is because there is no punctuation in the Greek language. And so for some of you, you have a question in verse 4. Do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? And what, where this falls is Paul's way of writing. It's difficult to interpret. Is this a question or is this a definitive statement? And so since there's no punctuation in the Greek, then the question mark was only applied by the translators. That's why some of your translation reads verse 4 as a question and some does not. So verse 4 may be interpreted for your, in your translation where Paul is focusing on unbelievers being unfit for judging such church matters. That's what the New, New American Standard, that's the version that they take. Do you appoint them, unbelievers, as judges who are of no account in the church? That's kind of one interpretation. So it would be Paul like circling the wagons. He's already said that the world has no business. He talks about the churches, of the foundation in which we can judge. And then he returns back in verse 4 to a question. Do you appoint these men? Almost a rhetorical question. Do you appoint these unbelieving men as judges who are of no account in the church? But the other translation which I prefer, is not a question. And instead, the way that the Greek is written, you can also interpret that and say, is there not, um, a, or it's, it would not be a question, it would say, appoint them as judges who are of little account in the church. And it's not talking about unbelievers, it's actually talking about those who are considered insignificant in the church. The weak of the church, the, the, the ones that the world might consider as, and Paul's already dealt with this, the, the insignificant of the church. Remember how Paul talked about the church was uh, because man's wisdom was heralded above the gospel, that the people of the world, the people of the church seemed foolish to the world, and that we were the insignificant ones and we were the weak ones? Well, you can also interpret this as not... Paul asking a question, but Paul making a statement saying this. This is such a spiritual matter, and this is such a spiritual authoritative matter, that even the insignificant believers in your church can handle something like this over unbelievers in the world. Either, either translation fits. And I like the second translation. I like it because he's literally saying that your most inexperienced believer that is trusted in Christ and has the Holy Spirit and know God's Word is more qualified than unbelieving judges with an unbelieving, unrighteous worldview. And man, I just think that screams there's no reason for us to defer to the world. There's no reason, church. Young people, you are living this life in this world with the education of family that, that will teach you God's word and educate you and catechize you and, and point you to the gospel. And if you are a believer in Jesus 
and you were at school or you were on a sports team and your brothers and sisters in Christ that confess Jesus as Lord are in a dispute, don't think because you're a young person that you can't be a part of that and bring some reconciliation and, and resolution to that because you're young. Even this verse right here, as I just told you, reminds us. And by the way, you are not insignificant, though the world might seem or, or label you that way. With the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, the Word of God before you, you can make righteous judgments. Because you have authority given to you by God to play a part in the lives of each other. So Paul is pretty clear with his statements about the church's responsibility. This shapes and molds our ecclesiology. It helps us to know how to be good peacemakers and bring biblical re reconciliation to the church. But he's not done, and I'll finish in verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8, Paul basically jumps back into the sin of the church. And here he's talking about how the church has been called to live righteously as we judge rightly. That we're called to live holy lives. And, and in verses 7 and 8, Paul is rebuking them for their sin. He says, this is already a legal defeat for you. That's what he says. This is a loss. This is a failure. Why? Because you stained the reputation of the church. You've brought about this lawsuit with one another, and you're dishonoring Christ. Who is the peacemaker? Who is the, the chief reconciler? And here you can't come to resolution. You instead are taking your resolution to the world and showing yourselves as foolish. And so Paul is, is chastising them, calling them to live righteously as you judge rightly. He even seems to be, in verses at uh, the end of verses uh, 7 and into 8, he says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. It appears that, that, that Paul, as he's kind of speaking generally to the church, he begins to speak individually to these two in conflict with one another. And it particularly identifies for us the hard issue of taking things to legal courts. He uses words like defrauding, which is, is basically stealing, and wrong, which is just harming someone. And he basically is, I think he's speaking to these two individuals in conflict that the church is allowed not to settle or, or bring some resolution to, to help them. But instead, they've allowed them to take this issue to the, to the courts, to the public, shaming the name of Christ. And so Paul rebukes them and says, why do you steal and defraud each other? Because ultimately, when we take our issues out to the legal courts, we're not asking those legal courts to deal with our hard issues. We just want to get paid. We just want some retribution. We just want, uh, we want to feel better about ourselves because our rights have been violated. And I think what Paul is teaching us here is that that is not the behavior of a Christian. What rights do you really have, church? All that you have, God has given you. And Paul says that instead of embarrassing the church, would it not be rather 
your money stolen than to shame the name of Christ by taking such a dispute to the world? Those are rhetorical questions, by the way. Because the truth of the matter is that our lives will be violated, church. We may not ever get restitution for what we've been called to do and live in. Jesus promised that in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you remember that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say you do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other one also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, he doesn't say fight back. He says, let them have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. In the end, church, we may not receive justice. We may be wronged and, and have to literally rest upon a sovereign God who will one day bring some form of vengeance upon their sin, not because they offended us, because ultimately they offended Him. Because what small and infinitesimal sin and conflict that's happened to us, some, some disagreement or attack, it hurts us. But it's ultimately an attack against the Lord Jesus, against His holiness, against His majesty and His power and His holy name. And so we know that, that we may never be rectified. But because of Jesus Christ, our great reconciler, our great mediator, we know that He has gone before us on our behalf, bringing reconciliation to us between God and man. And in that reconciliation, He promises us that one day, one day He will bring about vengeance upon those who have sinned against Him and rebelled against His name. Because He is the great judge of all. And as the great mediator, not only does He bring reconciliation to us, but He teaches us reconciliation and peace. So as we are reflecting the glory and the character of Christ in a shadowy and limited way, we are going out as the church committed to live as reconcilers with one another. Paul says, or Jesus says, blessed be the peace what? Makers. Blessed be the peacemakers. So we are committed, church. You should be committed. I'm calling you as one of your pastors and elders here. I am calling you to be committed to open the doors of intimacy and vulnerability in your life and acknowledge the fact that the Lord Jesus has so knit us together that includes us being up in your business as brothers and sisters, not just elders, but as brothers and sisters for your spiritual betterment. And I'll be real frank with you. If we cannot grab a hold of that, then we don't understand what the church is. And we'd be better off being a church like a drive-in movie theater. You know, you roll up to the theater, you sit in your car, you don't interact with people around you, you watch the show, and you go home. And I think there's a lot of people in the world they would be fine with church being like that. Just let me come for the show. Let me stay in my own bubble. Let me go home and I'll be good. 
That's not the church that Jesus bled and died for. Instead, let's be a church that is seeking reconciliation, seeking peace for His glory and His fame. Let's live righteously as we seek the peace in this world, pointing people to the gospel, pointing people to the hope in Jesus. And in doing so, we will bring Christ glory. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you. Father, that your word instructs us how to live as believers. And God, all across this world, there is this passion and this desire for people to have their rights wrong, to have justice being done. And Lord, we know that that desire in them is fulfilled in you. They may not see that, Father, but we know that you are our true justice and our true hope. You bring about us true peace and reconciliation. And we thank you for that. And all these false ideas of that and all these false um, attempts to deliver that in this earthly world will always fail. So help us to be faithful to not only demonstrate peace among one another, but to teach and point other people to the peace that Jesus Christ provides, a spiritual peace. A reconciliation from the separation of the Holy God because of sin. And God, help us to love one another as the church in such a way, Father, that we live life together. Bearing each other's burdens. Rejoicing when people rejoice and weeping when people weep. Because we know, Father, that, that you have designed us to be a community sharing life together for your glory until you return so that we might live together in peace with you for all eternity. And we thank you for that promise in Christ's name.